Hello, and welcome to another engaging episode of Cyber Speaks Live, the InfoSec podcast recorded in front of a live online audience, giving you, the community, a voice that can be heard around the world. And now it's time for your host, Duncan Macklin. Hello, everyone. My name is Duncan Macklin. I am InfoSec War on Twitter. And this is another engaging episode of Cyber Speaks Live, brought to you every Wednesday and getting injected into your ears through whatever podcast player you prefer to listen to us on. You can also catch us on Anchor FM. Anyhow, joining me today is Tony Sager, the Chief Evangelist and Executive Vice President at the Center for Internet Security, or shortly known as CIS. Uh, uh, CIS does some fantastic work all around the world, a community-driven organization that is uh, responsible for probably their their most recognized item, and that is the CIS Top 20 Security Controls. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about baseline management. We're going to be discussing uh, workflows and um, OS hardening, just a ton of stuff that CIS collectively delivers to organizations throughout the world using community-based experts and being able to put all this stuff together. So without further ado, let me go ahead and give you a little bit of background on Tony here. So Tony, as I said, he is the uh, Senior Vice President and Chief Evangelist for CIS, where ultimately he leads the development of those CIS controls, but he also really nurtures the the CIS's independent worldwide community of volunteers and basically encourages them to make their enterprises and the connected world a safer place, ultimately. Uh, He's a big, uh, uh, hugely active volunteer within the InfoSec community, and I'll let him expand on some of his volunteerism and the organizations that he's worked for. But the majority of Tony's career was spent at the NSA, and he retired from the organization after 34 years of service. Uh, Just excellent, stellar history with the organization where not just once, but twice, he received the meritorious level in the presidential rank award. Uh, So just a tremendous asset to this nation and the work that he did with the NSA. And we're going to talk about that a lot. So I, I don't want to steal too much of his thunder there. So without further ado, let me just go ahead and introduce to you, Tony Sager. Tony, thank you for joining us, sir. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Duncan. Appreciate the, the, the kind introduction. Yeah, it's been a, it's been quite a ride. Uh, what a long, strange trip it's been, and I think still more to go. Uh, by by some counts, I'm approaching, I think, 43 years now as a uh, active practitioner of cybersecurity. You know, long before we even had the word to, to play around with, uh, I started um, you know, in the mid '70s, kind of by accident at the National Security Agency. Was an undergraduate uh, math major, and uh, you know, I did not go to the kind of the school that NSA would have recruited at. Uh, wound up just by accident. Uh, 
applying, taking the, the hardest math test of my life, and then uh, coming into the door at NSA. Uh, I was doomed for a long, uh, undistinguished career as a mathematician, uh, which is the king <laughs> of sciences back at the agency. Uh, but my world changed forever with the emergence of things like the Apple II. And so I switched my career field from math yep. to computer science uh, because I figured out I could get the government to buy me an Apple II Plus to have on my desk. And I just thought that was the coolest <laughs> thing ever. You know, this, this idea of, uh, I, I don't know about you, I, you're, you're much younger, Duncan, but, you know, I learned computing. I took the only computing course my college offered, and, you, know, the, all the, you know, the classic dinosaur stuff, right? Card decks and be nice to the guy at the counter so you get two runs a day and, you know, gigantic fan fold printout paper. And I thought, my God, what a miserable way to, to do analysis and make a living. I would never get, I'm never going to touch this stuff. But I wound up at NSA. Yeah, you're you're right. Just, I, uh, I am day. a lot younger, Tony. Uh, <laughs> I, I was three years old when you got into this game. So. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Well, I'll, uh, I'll try not to give you too many uh, old dad stories. Then. But uh, when I found it <laughs> in the 70s, uh, NSA was at the leading edge of computing. You know, no one had sort of more interesting, complex, and large-scale problems of storage, uh, searching, sorting, and that kind of management. And it turned out that the, the world there of computing was really different than what you saw in the marketplace. And a lot of the advances, I think I can safely say, uh, at the time were driven by, by places like NSA, the advances in the industry. So, so switching into computer science, uh, and I spent my whole career in defense. And think of me as, as one of the people who finds flaws for a living for the defense. So there's always been a tradition, whether it's nuclear weapons or cryptography or whatever, you know, where the, the, the stakes are really high if you make a mistake. So you wind up hiring a room full of, you know, odd people who are really good at finding problems and turning them loose on stuff that the government was building to find those problems, preferably before the real bad guys did. So in the nuclear weapons, that was called black hats. In the NSA, it was called vulnerability testing. And there's a lots of equivalents to that around the industry. So I switched into computer science just as we were seeing these uh, pesky little microprocessors sort of show up everywhere, you know, and we were going from uh, cryptography was so important that we couldn't trust it to be done in software. And that was literally the mantra of the day. We needed to build custom hardware to implement really sensitive things, whether it was uh, uh, personal safety things or nuclear weapons things or whatever. But the economics, that was one of the great lessons of my career. Economics always wins. Like this idea of commodity low-cost uh, technology that could be used, repurposed, reprogrammed, and could be used for all kinds of things, whether it's the, the security function or the front panel display or the communications controller. You know, economics sort of compelled the use of these commodity things in, in, in across the, the things that we thought were so, so important they couldn't be uh, done this way. So I got to kind of ride the wave that, you know, uh, I spent my early career uh, roughly a third of it, sort of learning the craft of finding problems, you know, uh, how the systems get exploited, either through the mathematics or through the software, how could they be manipulated, uh, switched into management, in the middle third of my career was all about managing organizations that, that do that kind of work, and do it across a full spectrum. So when governments do this, you know, it's not just finding zero days in software, it's looking at the math, the software, the hardware, the signals, you know, the people that worry about the bugs and, and microphones in the walls and all that kind of stuff all those kinds of all right. ways that we attack. And um, you know, so my, my sort of capstone job, I called it, uh, I ran uh, a group, I'm the, the founder and, and first, last, and only chief of vulnerability analysis and operations at the National Security Agency. So think of it, again, as the biggest vulnerability finding machine for defense. I think uh, I can safely say in the US government. And uh, 
So that gave me a chance to see a lot of things break. You know, how, how do how do systems get exploited? How do they get attacked? And I also had the luxury that a lot of folks that have lived their life in defense don't get. That is, I got to live my defensive life inside an intelligence agency. So think of that as sort of the graduate mm-hmm. education, right, and how nations attack each other. So, so I said the first third was sort of technical craft, the middle third was around management, and the last third of my life I spent wondering, what the heck's going wrong here? Why are we finding the same problems over and over again? Right? What's going on? We told them what the problem was. You know, There's no better job in this industry than being paid to find people's problems and point them out and then walk away with no responsibility to fix them. And I just thought, man, this is not very satisfying. I, it's not fun to find the same problem every six months, you know, every time you, you deal with a particular military unit or whatever. So something's going wrong, and it's not because people are lazy or they don't care. It's that there's something systemically wrong. So the last third of my life yep. in, at NSA was about, you know, how do we not, – not how do we tell people what's wrong, but how do we translate what we learn from finding flaws and translate it into positive action? You know, what can people do about it, right? I mean, they're they're astounded when you cleverly point out problems, but obviously that doesn't solve the problem. What they need to, it really is what I call a translation. And so that really drives the work um, you know, that I did really the last third of my, my career and even today at the, at the Center for Internet Security. It's not about sort of uh, picking out problems that we already have understood for decades. It's about, okay, I get it now. What should we do about it? And recognizing that most enterprises struggle to do this on their own, right? That is, they're sort of left uh, scratching their heads over, you know, lists of thousands of vulnerabilities and an infinite number of products and a noisy marketplace. So how do we simplify that problem, help people translate what's really going on out there into into action? So I retired, uh, just to summarize, about seven years and a month ago. And uh, it was time in my life to do something different. And I've been lucky enough, had a couple of uh, fits and starts and, and took over this project that, that we now call the CIS uh, Critical Security Controls. Uh, many people in the industry knew it as the SANS Top 20. Uh, it actually originated one afternoon with five friends of mine at NSA, scratching our heads on that whole problem I, I just talked to you about, which is uh, like, what do people do about this? And the most common problem or question that people gave me once I started uh, getting out in the public to talk about this was, the, the common question was, what do I do first? You know, not how do I solve world hunger and, and make myself safe for all time, but how do I get started? You know, my boss has a limited attention span. I have a small budget. I only got three people. You know, how do I get started on something that's useful that I can build upon? And that was really brought my attention to gather a small number of people to think about an idea and this sort of a two-page thing that we came up with one afternoon and shared with some friends across the government uh, became got picked up by the SANS Institute and turned into this bigger deal. You know, I never dreamed, frankly. I, I'd love to tell you I had a great vision of what was going to happen, but it's not true. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that you do with good intent and it just gets a life of its own. And so here we are, you know, umpteen years later with, uh, you know, really a worldwide activity and a really wonderful, uh, strong nonprofit company behind it, et cetera. Yeah, it's a great story, Tony, you know, and uh, – kind of what you were talking about there at the end with how to get started you know sometimes these organizations it looks so overwhelming kind of in the sense of boiling the ocean you know that's an impossible task but you know it doesn't take too much to turn the kettle on and boil a pot of water right you know let's start small build up from there uh but your story if 
if somebody were to look at your CV today and say, how does a guy from, you know, 34 years of, of service with the NSA transition to CIS, mm -hmm. probably not very easy to figure out that bridge, but your story and how you told that just made it so clear about that civilian transition. But more importantly, if I'm not mistaken, you began your career as a college intern, right? With the NSA? Uh, actually, no, I uh, never interned with the NSA. I had uh, two summers before I was at NSA. I, I was actually a, a summer intern with the Department of the Army at a place called Aberdeen Proving Ground, oh, which man. is uh, here in Maryland. Yeah. And uh, just a quick, quick su summary of that. That's why I'm a little fuzzy when I say how many years I've been doing this. My first year and my first federal <laughs> job, I was uh, in my junior year of college and finishing up that junior year, uh, I actually worked in the mailroom at uh, Aberdeen Proving Grounds, a little tiny government agency called the Army Materiel Systems Analysis Activity. So think of a bunch of math wonks modeling guns and rockets, and, you know, that kind of, those kind of military toys. And uh, working in the mailroom, I have a whole speech I, I give, I won't bore you with it, but um, I, 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 I talk about working in the mailroom was the start of my career as an information warrior. So a mailroom, go, go back with me in time now, I know you're young, but the 70s, a mailroom, right, was physical mail. There was no such thing as email. And there was a big wall full of cubbies and, you know, people would come down and drop mail yeah. off and they would go to their cubby. And I'm the kid in the back, you know, put the mail in there to, you know, it's going to go to this unit, to this unit, to this unit. So I, now I'm the happiest can be because I got a federal job. You know, this is like pretty cool. I'm a, at the very, very bottom of the federal pay scale, you know, doing the humblest possible job. But I realized at some point, and there really is a serious message here about the world we're in today. It turned out that the mailroom was information central for that small government agency, mostly because it was gossip central. Everybody, the people in the mailroom knew everything that was going on in that entire agency, you know, from official stuff to personal stuff to who was doing what to who, to who hated who, to who left work to play golf early, to, you know, what was going on between uh, workplace members. They were astounding in their information reach. And they, you know, they could tell you by the size, shape, and color of an envelope, whether it was an award or an official notification of something good or something bad, they knew to the penny what every person got paid at that agency. It was really amazing. And the lady that run, ran the mailroom at the time, a kindly old Arlene, and she was kindly and she was old, uh, turned out to be a really powerful <laughs> broker of information. And the, 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 the closing joke is whenever she needed more information, she would, uh, in today's language, she would refresh her sensor network. She put out three crock pots of food on the counter in the mailroom in the morning and the smell would go through the entire building and people would wander down and linger at the mailroom counter hoping for an invitation to lunch. And it turned out the price of lunch was a little bit of information for Arlene to, to have. So it was like, I, I was watching a master of information content, right? And, and in all seriousness, I mean, that's the lesson of maybe recent elections and other sort of big cyber things, right? We focus a lot on technology, but content really king, is really king in many cases. That is what you know is less important than how it got there. Oh, so that was my but, first summer of a federal employment. Okay, so thank you for correcting me. And, <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, you know, the lesson learned there is history repeats itself. Hmm. Here we are, uh, I'm not going to age you, but all <laughs> these years later, where data has surpassed the value of gold and become the most valuable commodity in existence, right? And the mail flow 
may have changed the way that information is shared, what it looks like and how it's received, but it's still just as critical today and just as susceptible to intercept and misuse, right? So that's why we have organizations like CIS in existence to help other organizations around the globe protect and defend themselves and to improve their overall security posture. So with that in mind, let's actually talk in, mm -hmm. sure. Carol, we have a couple polls here. Let's just throw out the first one because actually I neglected to ask, but prior to today, <clears throat> let's just say prior to today, how familiar are you with the CIS top 20 security controls? Let's just say yes, that you are familiar or no, you're not familiar with them. And this is net new knowledge for you. We'll leave this up for just a few seconds. Let our live attendees respond and I will update you for the listeners afterwards. But so Tony, right now it's looking like uh, two thirds of the audience are familiar with the CIS top 20 security controls. A third in attendance are not, but let's go ahead and talk about the controls because we're also seeing some other changes that we're going to talk about when we discuss the uh, version 7 and 7.1. But at a high level, what are the CIS top 20 security controls? Yeah, I, I mentioned the, the sort of history or the historical origin, right? The two page letter. And, right. and the goal there, the, the way I started that meeting was, okay, you know, here's the challenge for this group of people. And these were not ordinary folks. These are people that I thought were extraordinary in, the, in their knowledge. And a professional attacker, for example, professional defender, technical lead of the red team at NSA, blue team, uh, technologist, and so forth. So these are people that were really represented some amazing talent. And the idea was that no one leaves a room until we all agree on the small number of things all of our friends should do. Do not try to solve world hunger at the table here. Right. One of the problems with the security business is that, you know, people grew up like I did. You are, you can't help yourself, right? Oh, you solved a hundred problems. Let me give you 10 more. You've got 25 things to do. Let me give you 50 more. You know, no matter what you do, there's this sort of like one upsmanship. We try to come up with these infinite lists of controls or attacks or vulnerabilities or whatever. And that's part of the problem that overwhelms people that they just, you know, they, they just think it's helpless, right? I don't know what to do. And you're overwhelming me with information. So the, the controls matured into a, a little more, think of it this way. I, I like to think of it as, so here's the bad news, right? Every enterprise has to defend themselves. You have to, I mean, that's just the price of admission onto the internet. But uh, it, well, while it may seem overwhelming, it turns out that almost everything you have to defend yourself against, everybody else has to worry about too, right? There, you're, there's this big soup of bad things. We're all using the same technology on the same network. We're hopelessly interlocked in complicated business relationships. And so the, that's bad news, but the good news is it's a perfect place for shared labor and common action, right? Why should, every, should we really count on every, for example, agency in the U.S. government to figure this out on their own then put it all together at the end and hope it adds up to a secure U.S. government? Well, that, that's never happened in my experience, right? So you think of this as how do I uh, – we don't use the term normally, but how do I crowdsource my knowledge of the attacks that are happening, crowdsource the translation of them into action, and create a smaller, more – concrete, positive, constructive set of things that everyone could do to manage that problem. And so it's really starts from attacks, 
focuses on the verb translation. Then we create a supported list. And so the controls matured into this more, again, technology focused, but more than the list, right? It's a, it's a less, it's a set of actions that sort of digest the essence of uh, really large comprehensive frameworks. It's, it's demonstrably and clearly a subset of, for example, the giant NIST catalog or anything from ISO or PCI or anybody else, right? It's a, it's really not intended to look across all these things. It's to say, okay, um, for example, the, the, if you're familiar with the uh, NIST Special Pub 800-53 uh, series, that the, sort of like the, the grandfather of all control catalogs, right? Well, no one can do all those. Right. And NIST doesn't expect you to do all those, right? You're supposed to wisely choose a subset based upon your perception of threats and your business and your dependencies and so forth, according to some risk management framework. My experience was typical enterprises, especially in government, could not execute that successfully. So better to share labor, sort of focus everybody in on the core set that they all ought to worry about. And then there's a lot more, everything from shared labor, but also comparability. I can compare one uh, enterprise to another in terms of their security state. So, so the idea was to sort of cut through all that. The term I used, uh, I made up a talk in, I forget, using... five, six years ago. The, uh, the uh, fog of more was the, the talk, the, uh, the, the tag phrase for an RSA talk a few years ago. And it was trying to uh, make a point that in today's world, it's not that we don't have good solutions, right? There's plenty of great technology and great training and all kinds of things out in the environment. The problem right now is there's so many of them so much and so much noise in the marketplace that people are, are really kind of wandering through the fog and can't make the choices. So I think that, um, you know, when I think of the controls, I think of this roughly a, a crowdsourced way to make sense of the world of attacks, translate them into action, and then build a community that supports each other to achieve them. So what we've done over the last couple versions, you mentioned uh, 7 and, and 7.1, those, you know, for the last uh, uh, couple of rounds, the focus has been on simplifying the language, making it easier to understand when you've done what was expected or what done what was asked for, and to build more uh, inherent measurability and simplification into the whole process. So you'll see another big change. We, we haven't started the work on it yet, but we've started the brainstorming about version eight. If you actually look at the list, and you can you can download the, all the content at no charge from cisecurity.org, uh, those that work in the business will not see like magic and rocket science and you know you'll see sensible knowable manageable activities right it's not it turns out it's not magic that you need it turns out you need a discipline in the way you manage your systems anyway so so that's the, the sort of philosophy that drives the controls there's the usual things in there the, the core of them which people uh, sort of uh, start on and focus on first have to do with really good management practices uh, knowing mm -hmm. what you have in your environment, whether it's hardware or software, having a good configuration management. I know you'd like to talk about that some, some uh, a little bit later. Good control over uh, administrative privilege, right? And all of these actually right. have an analog in physical space. You know, imagine a company uh, executive who didn't really know what was in their physical inventory, didn't know how many things they owned and where they were located and what state of repair they're in. If, imagine if they didn't know who had the ability to who had keys to the front door or the ability to bypass your security systems or you know can turn off your security cameras. Imagine if you what what responsible executive would admit to any of that. But we accept that as a way of life in cyberspace, right? Which is kind of insane. Now, I will it, say in cyberspace really or technology. Good. Please, please go ahead. 
I was just going to say that's a really good analogy to be able to put things into perspectives for individuals, especially in, let's just say, the SMB space or the small and medium-sized businesses, right. you know, because ultimately they seem to be the, the least accepting of the world as it exists today and the countermeasures that they need to put into place to be able to protect and defend themselves. And yet right. they are the most likely to be attacked and the most likely to end up going out of business as a result of a cyber incident. We have the data mm -hmm. to support this from the FBI, sure. where 60% of small business organizations will be out of business within six months of a cyber incident occurring. So why is it, you know, so difficult for these small to medium-sized businesses to realize the criticality of managing digital security just as well as they would physical security. And I really appreciate you putting it into that perspective because I think that's something that ultimately they can relate to and perhaps get a, a bit of severity level as a result. Mm -hmm. Now that kind of fits into And I know you talked about futures with version eight just starting to get kind of ramped up right now. But it hasn't been that long since you guys released version seven of the top 20 controls. And right. within version seven, there were some tenants that you guys, mm -hmm. and I'm using my air quotes here, but went to market with. And if I'm not mistaken, the, the chief tenants were both simplified language, right? To be able mm -hmm. to make it right. a little bit easier for mid-market small business to understand as well as to be able to translate these top 20 controls to things like NIST and have some commonality in the language types. Would you agree right. with that? Yeah, and then, yep, those were right in there. And then secondly, the, the other chief control, as I recall, was that for each sub-control, there's one control, one ask, right? And that mm -hmm. being, one thing that you need to do can would you mind just elaborating on that core concept because i thought that that was so fundamental for making headway with getting things right. done in these controls so let me turn that over to you yeah for, that was a, that was, you're a, that was a very good catch duncan i think because um you know security is complicated i mean but there's just no getting around it but the um the, the security wording is often full of these, uh, I'll call them uh, one notch below motherhood statements, right? Sort of good things to do that are unclear. And, and the world of security frameworks or recommendation lists or catalogs covers the waterfront from what I would call cosmic, you know, uh, sort of do good and write me a paper that says you did good all the way down to the microscopic. You know, you must have a firewall. You must have a something, you know, must do this. And I find both of those to be not very helpful. Like the, the cosmic ones tend to create large paper generating exercises, but no improvements. The, the more uh, granular or specific you make it, you can make it so specific that you're locking people into specific technical solutions when in fact there are, there are other options. So we're always aiming for some you know, mythical sweet spot here, right? We're trying to aim for something that is abstract enough to give you choices. That is, you can think about different ways that are consistent with your enterprise on, on how to implement but specific enough that there isn't too much mystery as to what you really need to do. You know, based upon, again, knowledge of attacks is translated in action. But 
Uh, when we looked at, at version seven, usually what I do, and this is just my way of thinking, right? Before I start on something complicated, I try to write what I would call a first principles document. You know, three or four or five uh, bullet points. Just when in doubt, look at this list and see if it helps clarify which when you should go left or right, or write more or write less, or be more abstract, or be more specific. And so you just hit three of them right, right up hand. But the one sort of uh, you know one control one ask. If you we, we we have to stop thinking of like the catalogs and the lists and so forth as sort of the the end product. Right? At the end of the day, whatever is in that recommendation ought to have some measurement associated with it. Ought to have a test that says it's successful. It ought to be fairly clear what what are my choices in the tool marketplace or process marketplace to help me do this. So the the more streamlined and simpler upfront and the sort of less ambiguity focus on asking for one thing to be done, that allows you to build the chain of other activities much more cleanly and preferably in a more automated way. You know, we create a, a lot of, if, if, if your wording is very um, abstract and, and sort of plain, you know, you're aiming for English, but it can be very um, ambiguous, then what you create is a marketplace of interpretation, right? You have to have auditors and everybody in the brother has to figure out on their own and interpret what was intended here and did they meet it or not. So the idea is to think of this as a full machine, right? Not a not an event, not a list, not a you know a punch list or a checklist, but the start of a whole cycle of activities, which includes measurement, testing, tools, training, uh, business processes, and so forth. So I just felt like we needed to make start moving in that direction, and the only way you can do it is by simplifying kind of the, the core components of it. So that allows us to, to think through a number of these other problems. And we're not where we want to be yet, but that that was really the motivation there. You mentioned another couple of uh, key ones. One is this commonality, right? I, I think we're around, we've entered what I call the multi-framework era. You know, based on our surveys, you know, as you know, we're very close with state and locals, but but we have a very big reach across the uh, the economy. Uh, typically now, everyone's coming for for us, right? The, the, everyone is looking over your shoulder: auditors, regulators, lawyers, judges, you know, supply chain partners wanting to know, are you a responsible partner or a responsible citizen, et cetera, in cyberspace? And so this multi-frameworks, right? No one has to deal with one framework like the NIST framework. People often have to do with two, three, four, five, or more, depending on what area of the world, sector of the economy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you have to be able to um, navigate this sort of multi-framework world. And in the best case, you would kind of do good things technically, and the data that's, that's generated by implementing would allow you to answer the PCI auditor, right? The regulator, the insurance company, the judge, that you did a responsible right thing. And so I, I think we're, we're about to create a monster here in our economy. And so I'm, I'm committed, uh, philosophically aligned with NIST, to try and build in you know, the sort of cross-mapping between frameworks, right? If, if every enterprise is expected to answer to several of them, then why don't those of us that create these beasts up front try to make it easy for people to do that as opposed to them having to do it themselves individually, convince their auditor, convince their boss, convince their regulator. That's just wasted effort. So it's another place. See, part of my life philosophy is always look for places where there's more in common than different and see if we can find some way to share labor or uh, create some intermediate yeah. product that allows people to solve this at scale. So you, so you hit commonality also, which I think is another key one, but those are the, the sort of big two that you hit right there. This, one, one control, one ask. But I, I would just want to make that point about sort of seeing this as a cycle of activity, not as the publication of a paper list. 
Absolutely. And, you know, for those that are participating live, I have on the screen the the structure of the top 20 controls, how they're broken down now into these three, what are referred to as implementation groups now, basic, foundational, and organizational. Now, each one of those uh, implementation groups, this is a new concept that was brought in right. with the release of 7.1 of right. the CIS security controls. Do you want to talk a little bit about what the motivation was around the 7.1 release and these implementation groups? Yeah, absolutely. What, what you see on the screen, uh, you know, this came with version 7, sort of basic, foundational, and organizational. And we were trying, uh, again, this is not a singular list. We were trying to create new ways to help people think about structuring their defensive improvement program, right? Even, and, and the, the 20 things actually translates into you know, a significant number of, of lower level actions. Well, no enterprise does them all at once. You know, you don't have the funding or the time, you know, et cetera, to do it. So you're, you're gonna have to uh, have a plan of improvement. So we're always looking for ways to help people manage that plan in a sensible way. So for version seven, we came up with these kind of conceptual uh, column columns here. The one on the right, the organizational ones are, are different. They're not sort of individual technical controls. They're, they're sort of process heavy, you know, how do I manage security and deal with incidents and so forth. And so they were of a different flavor. We called them organizational. But what we did with that, excuse me, you mentioned implementation groups, was, and we're really trying to retune some of our products to help the, the smaller enterprises who do not have a lot of energy or resources or analytic time. Uh, the implementations groups really look horizontally across these three columns and pick out individual subcontrols. And implementation group one, you know, our way of thinking about that was, what's the sort of basics that everyone should do? Don't even think about it. You know, this is the small resourced, facing a low risk enterprise, doesn't have a lot of ability to do much, but doesn't really, doesn't necessarily need to because of the kind of business that they're in. And so it picks out individual items across there bundles them together. There's a whole separate flyer that uh, if anyone on the call is interested, uh, can get through cisecurity.org that lays this out. You know, for example, uh, a number of people uh, uh, um, would take the 20 list here, just sort of start at one and work your way through. But a classic example is you go, if you look at, uh, say, number 13, uh, data protection, you know, what the thing is plaguing small businesses today, and I'm sure you know this, Duncan, is uh, ransomware. Oh, yeah. And so you've got you've got to protect yourself against ransomware, right? The, mm -hmm. the attack vectors, but you also need to do sensible things in backups so that you can recover from them. So we don't want to leave enterprises sort of working on one through six or one through ten, and never getting around or being not having gotten to thinking about backups yet. <laughs> yeah, please me. So let, let me stress. Let me just stress that. <laughs> you know, do not wait until you have gone on you know, programmatically from one to 13 before you start backing up your stuff, folks, you know? Right, exactly. That, so the idea that is I think is the to... point that Tony's trying to drive across it, here. Exactly, yeah, that allows us to sort of bring that up. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Tony. Of, uh, uh, no, no, we want to bring up this, this having a backup strategy right into the sites of even the sort of lowest uh, resourced, uh, least uh, capable uh, enterprises here, right? Because otherwise you're counting on the ransomware executor to, to be your backup after you paid, and that's a pretty iffy proposition. So, so the idea was again help people. These implementation groups one, two, and three, you know, picks picks a think of it as a horizontal subset across the list of twenty, uh, partitioned out sort of like here's the really basic things, 
once you have this foundation, let's build upon that, and then let's build upon that. So, you know, even the the twenty is a is a is a, um, a summary of thousands, you know, potentially thousands of complicated things. But even this needs uh, help for a lot of enterprises. That is, how do they organize themselves? Sort of figure out that first month or that first quarter's worth of activity or the first project that they get funding for, et cetera. So that was really the intent with uh, version 7.1. Uh, we, we also, uh, you know, th this is really driven by volunteers. So, you know, there, there, there's not a room full of people at CIS, right, a giant think tank that's, that's figuring all this out. There's, yes, a handful of great professional people uh, supported by the rest of the company that, that produce the controls. But it's also the uh, input of you know a countless number of volunteers from around the world, the experience of a huge number of adopters, uh, feedback from all the vendors that support it. So our work at CIS is really about distilling all that, look at how technology has changed, how the attackers have changed, how the business use of technology has changed, and see if we can, can do this translation job to make everything uh, uh, into some constructive uh, steps that that enterprises should get started on, as opposed to drowning in the noise. I think uh, you know another topic I did was hardened images and uh, security configuration. So let me just make a nod to that work also because that's you know that's um, something I was involved with at NSA and really uh, just the the work has matured so much and CIS is really the I would no question the world leader in the both the production of hardened images for security and the the uh, sort of thinking about how to manage them. So. You know, for me, uh, it was around 1999 or so. I mean, that's how far back it goes. The importance of developing and managing to a trusted security configuration really, really came to fore. I had the, the blue team from uh, NSA was one of my groups. And the NSA started to produce what we called security guides back then. And they were not, again, no one dreamed they were going to become this big. They were really put together to train people that were going to do testing for a living. You need to look for this kind of stuff. Excuse <laughs> me. And, um, well, it turned into a, a handout, something we would give to customers when we couldn't visit them or as we were on it walking on the way out. They got kind of a life of its own. It became kind of a thing across the industry and the government, right? The production of things. Uh, there's, there's a term in the DOD called STIGs, uh, Security uh, Technical Implementation Guides that were the equivalent. NIST has a checklist program. Early 2000s was the startup of C the original CIS, which was really focused on this problem. So, <clears throat> But it was really obvious to me. We did not... Uh, pr produced them that way, but you know, we, we would in good faith produce these security guides, but we never tried to really calculate the value of them until I made the team go off and think about it a little bit more and say, you know, if, if people followed all our rec recommendations, how many of the Microsoft security bulletins in the last year would have been either minimized or blocked in the problems they were trying to solve <clears throat> just through sort of good administrative uh, management practice of configurations. And it turned out the answer was almost all of them. You know, and the lesson for me in the late 90s, early 2000s was a well-managed, patched up, well-configured system is, is not an easy target. And I know that because I work with professional bad guys for a living who would tell me that all the time. You know, when they find a well-run system, they go elsewhere. So let's talk about that for um, stepping into some of the other areas. are doing some phenomenal work around OS hardening. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of can you describe for me what you guys are doing around OS hardening? Uh, sure. Yeah, I think you know. To me, 
the, the absolute bedrock foundation of any security program is around security configuration management. Right? You, you get significant security value from it anyway. That is good choices about registry keys and settings and permissions and the structure of your file systems and so forth demonstrably clearly uh, can minimize the attack surface, uh, block attacks directly, minimize the ability of attacker to move from place to place, or tremendous security value. And, and so you, you need to do it for that reason. You do it for another reason too, and that's, that's part and parcel of the early part of the controls. If you can manage configuration control sensibly, that says you have a pretty good handle on management of your IT. You know where the hardware is, what software is running, right? You know how to update things, you know when a security bulletin comes in, you know where to look for you know, the present bad things. And so to do it successfully, you also have to have kind of the IT management machinery in place that would allow you to be successful here. So this configuration management business is absolutely essential. And it was, you know, that was a clear lesson at NSA. You know, the Defense Department believes that, not acts that way. And it's really a core of the CIS mission. You know, and the CIS controls, think of them as a next level up of abstraction. That is, in the controls, we say you really need to manage to a well-trusted, vetted security configuration, which can include the CIS controls, right? That's obviously our preferred one. But, hey, NIST produces great content there. NSA still produces that kind of content. This is things are, you know, are excellent for what they do. So, you know, the, the specific choice you make might be driven by policy or by the environment that you work in. But um, the, the real key is that you really need to manage to them. And then probably what you've noticed, Duncan, is that as the technology has moved, uh, then CIS has had to move in order to move that security value and that security decision elsewhere. So we're now uh, very successfully translating our work in sort of, uh, you know, sort of do-it-yourself for security configurations into the cloud, uh, just like everybody else. And so you can go to any of the major cloud providers now, and if you want to say, I, I, want, I need, uh, you know, from any of the cloud providers, I need 10,000 Windows desktops that look like this and have these attributes and these, this number of servers, and I want them pre-configured to the CIS recommendations for the appropriate technology, then you just do that through the cloud provider, right? We have the cooperative agreements worked out with them so that the content that we produce through this, you know, nonprofit, uh, volunteer-driven organization is available to you kind of wherever you get your technology, whether you're buying it off of a shelf or through a, a virtual storefront. So, and that will continue, right? We have to sort of follow this wherever it goes uh, you know, wherever the security decisions get made and those choices get established, then we want to make that as easy, transparent, right off the shelf as possible for anybody who adopts our, our recommendations. Yeah, and those hardening guides that you provide that kind of differ from the, you know, hardened images that are available, you know, those mm -hmm. guides are exhaustive. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. but they <laughs> understand, yeah. They are co a complete, definitive, authoritative, exhaustive guide of step-by-step -step, every single element of, let's say, a Windows 10 hardened 
image what it should look like when it's going outside those doors. Now you can make the choice yourself which one of the you know controls and elements and security settings you want to enable, disable, alter from the recommendations from CIS, but at least you have that guidance and you have that know for all of what's been recommended. And it kind of fits with the same concept of uh, you know the 7.0 release of the CIS top 20, one security control, one ask, right? And if you right. look at the PDF guides for, let's say the Windows 10 hardening image, it's going to say, you know, here is this recommended security setting. Here is the reason why, and here's what it would look like on your box. That's the level of detail that these organizations need to be able to have sound decision-making as they're building out these images, whether if they're doing it for a gold image DVD, they're slapping it onto a share, they're using configuration manager and task sequencing, it doesn't matter. Or, you know, let's say the server products, they're going into AWS or uh, Azure, wherever with these images. So great work there. Absolutely love it, and I'm really hoping that more organizations out there will take a look at hardening their images because, as you said earlier, you know, the harder you make it for these, you know, threat actors, the more likely they're just going to move on to the next target. Um, and yeah, and that, that's exactly right. And I think that, and yeah, I appreciate the, the, the kind words, Sunka. And it is, you know, anyone that tries to start from scratch to take that problem on, right, as an <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking, because no. like, as you said, you can you can download for free the PDFs to at least give you a starting point yeah. to think about this. And you're getting, you know, the collective brain power of lots of amazing people that, you know, what what makes um, CIS successful, as well as lots of, you know, volunteerism is really the unsung hero of the cyber defense business here. That, you know, the, the, this industry is full of really talented people of really good will, right, who, who believe in a common cause and, you know, don't like the fact that criminals are exploiting the internet and are willing to put, you know, their, their scarce time and labor, either directly or sponsored by a company, into these sort of common cause elements like the like the hardening guidelines you know, and so forth. And so, you know, I, I just say, we just have to organize this, right? It's, it's not about building a giant company. It's about organizing all this collective talent and goodwill. So I think that, that really makes it go. And also, my experience with enterprises too, both government and the private sector, is that no enterprise has all the technical talent they need in cybersecurity. But everybody has a, a uh, one or two or more amazing people that are great at something. And so part of the CI's model is sort of bringing those talents together with equally great people to create these shared common products, right? And we do that through this, this sort of virtual model, uh, closed social media platform that allows people to interact, uh, you know, have these discussions about should we, should we recommend left or right or up or down or one or zero and, and sort of capture all that in a way then that can turn into those products that you mentioned. You know, Tony, that's absolutely correct. And a fantastic segue into how can folks get involved with CIS? How can they become a contributor as well as a consumer of these things? Sure, yeah, we, um, we regularly put out calls for volunteers you know, if you if you have something, and, and believe me, Ken, no one knows everything in this business, especially me. 
but if you can bring some expertise to the table and you're willing to dedicate some time to this, uh, you can reach out to us through, just go to our website, cisecurity.org. Uh, there's a, a regular information email there. There's ways to reach out. On LinkedIn, I think we post, I think we have a current call for volunteers out right now. And what we do is manage this. You know, I always say, uh, one of my sayings is uh, all this great volunteerism, uh, volunteerism doesn't, doesn't come for free. You know, the reason we have a company is to help organize this, right, to build kind of the workflow and the, the, the technology platform to manage it and to kind of build the support structure that, that turn this from a one-time list into a sustained set of products. So we use an in-house uh, social media uh, world called uh, Workbench. Uh, people can have an account on there, can be a part of these discussions. You know, that's where um, uh, topics are discussed, where we create products, where we manage kind of the workflow that says, okay, we're going to put an update out for a new, you know, a new configuration a benchmark for this particular technology, you know, someone's a leader, the assignments can be made, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're moving to a different world. I will say when I came on board uh, to CIS in 2015, you know, again, I, I ran all this at NSA. I knew what the rest of government did. You know, I knew the state of the art cold. Uh, and when I came to CIS, I looked at what, where CIS was in terms of its management of the, of the production of this kind of content. And where it was going, I said, oh, my gosh, this is a world ahead of where we were in the U.S. government. we got to do this instead. And so this idea of bringing things together, um, you know, in a, in a closed platform that allows you to manage this workflow. Well, what, what is traditionally done, right, you get a bunch of people in the room, they argue or they send email to each other, and someone takes a giant Word document, and you keep circling it around, and people comment on it so you get sick of it. That, that's just unwieldy and doesn't make any sense. The document is the last thing you want to produce. So within Workbench... We manage all this, you know, in a modern way, the way you kind of think of we produce uh, collaborative products today. And at the end, we can say, hmm, I need a PDF. Let's let's dump that out. Hmm, I need a Word document. You know, I need this form. I need right. the input to this tool. And that's really the goal here is to build a whole workflow, you know, top, top to bottom, start to finish. So anyone who wants to be a part of that, you know, uh, we're often looking for people uh, both to be part of our community for discussion, but also to be contributors to specific products. A lot of times the way these things work, too, is someone shows up at our doorstep and says, you know what, I've got this thing that we're using in-house in our company, and we think it's pretty good. We'd be happy to bring it to the day It's a starting you know, draft zero for other people that are like us. Hey, bring it on in. You know, Again, we, we're happy to take that, turn it into a community product, uh, bring other brain power, other folks, maybe your competitors even, into the table to add value to that content and then maintain it. That's really the key. I've been in this business a long time, and I've seen a lot of great ideas come uh, and then disappear a year or two later because there's no funding model, there's no sustainment, there's no, you know, government's the best at this, right? A lot of attention, bag of money, set up a project, two years later, it's all gone. You know, the document's still sitting on the shelf. So you need to, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm doing this in my second career. We really need to put in place kind of sustainment for this sort of unique content. Yeah, unfortunately, GitHub is filled with projects like that, that if they just had a little bit of funding, then they could uh, go a long way. So anyhow, yeah, with absolutely. that, Tony, we are coming up to the top of the hour. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy week, especially this particular week with uh, Hacker Summer Camp going on. Um, really appreciate you. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always. Again, if you want to get involved with CIS, check it out on their website, cisecurity.org. Uh, there's a slew of resources there. Just have 
fun diving into it all. Um, couple show notes. Tony, feel free. If you've got to run, I'm just going to do a few show notes here. Coming up next week, we are going to have a very special guest, Mr. M.A. Taylor, the film director of The Creepy Line. He is now coming on next Wednesday, same time, same bat station. So in between now and then, ladies and gentlemen, your homework assignment is to catch The Creepy Line on Amazon or iTunes. It is a truly eye-opening documentary film about the gravity of the situation we are facing with the way that Facebook and Google have their claws into every facet of our day-to-day lives. Uh, so I am going to be speaking with the film director about data privacy, data protection, and his inspiration behind making the movie The Creepy line so be sure to check that out in between now and next wednesday when we have mr m.a taylor on the show and be sure to join us for it ask him your questions or give him your feedback about the documentary okay folks that is it we are at the top of the hour thank you for joining in duncan macklin cyber speaks live you can find me online at infosec war on twitter or just look me up on LinkedIn, Duncan Macklin, M-C-A-L-Y-N-N. Talk to you next week, and we are out. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Cyber Speaks Live. Remember to visit our blog at cyberspeaks.com to sign up for our newsletter of upcoming episodes and special guest co-hosts. If you'd like to be a guest co-host or sponsor the show, please email us at speakup at cyberspeaks.com. That's all for this week. And as always, stay safe and secure out there.